This is an ABC podcast. Hi, this is The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge. Welcome to the program. And uh, I hope you're having a productive day, working with maximum efficiency, or perhaps engaging in leisure activities with maximum efficiency, maybe even preparing to go to sleep and uh, hacking your sleep cycle so that you can extract more benefit from that. Because that's what we're all supposed to be doing these days. Productivity and efficiency are very much the name of the game. And even things like our health and our hobbies are increasingly framed as opportunities for growth and profit. It's like we're always at work. And if you find this sort of thing a little depressing, perhaps, then today's conversation may give you a glimpse of some wonderful non-productive light at the end of the tunnel. My guest is Eva Buyalka. She's an academic working at Curtin University in Perth, where she also teaches at the School of Critical Arts. Eva, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. So this is a conversation that revolves around two 20th century figures who occupy opposite ends of the efficiency ideology spectrum. One is the French thinker Georges Bataille, who's just endlessly fascinating, and we're going to get onto him a little later in the program. The other is Frederick Winslow Taylor, also very interesting, who died in 1915. And his claim to infamy is that he was one of the first management consultants. He wrote a book called Scientific Management, which has been an incredibly influential work, even up to the present day. His ideas of workplace efficiency and efficiency practices have spread from factory floors all the way to offices and households, and even in some ways to our intimate personal lives. So let's get into all of that. Frederick W. Taylor, what's his story? Well, he's incredibly fascinating, actually, because um, he was born into a family of exceeding wealth. I mean, I think um, from memory, I think his family were actually on the Mayflower. So they were this pilgrim sort of family. They became incredibly wealthy. But curiously enough, he ended up working as an apprentice in, in a factory, despite being incredibly wealthy. You might imagine that working on the factory floor, I believe he was working in Philadelphia in like a steelworks or something of the sort, and you might imagine that, you know, working around all of these steel labourers, you know, maybe he became really enamoured with, you know, their solidarity and like with their like camaraderie, but instead it was actually quite the opposite. He came to believe that they were actually incredibly lazy that they weren't working as hard as they could. And in his writings, you increasingly sort of see his use of quite animalistic language to describe the people that he was working with. So he refers to people as like oxes and things like that. And the interesting point is that Taylor actually like uh, rises through the ranks as he's, as he's working in the factory. And so I think he he shifts from uh, being a worker on the floor to being a foreman and then if, I think eventually to being a manager. And he decides, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm actually going to try to start to study the movements of these workers to see if I can't squeeze out some more productivity from them by getting them to work in a more efficient fashion. In fact, the sort of the Taylorist method that he, in scare quotes, sort of perfected was that he focused in on a kind of a a dissolution or a breakdown of labour. So rather than the workers having their kind of their workers' craft, doing uh, a number of things in the production process and actually really having some sense of engagement with the thing that they were developing in the steelworks factory, for instance, Taylor said what we need to do, what is scientific, is actually getting uh, workers to work on the smallest incremental task and do that repetitively. So it could be, you know, hammering a single nail or doing a single thread or uh, what have you. 
and we can sort of time that and get someone to, um, you know, try to sort of beat their record each time, do it as swiftly as they can each time. And there's this sort of hypothetical, I think he refers to it as an ideal man, you know, a, a hypothetical ideal man should be able to achieve this much output in, um, in any one given day. And of course, this is um, this is all laid out in his famous work, uh, Scientific Management, which was very influential in the first part of the twentieth century. But then I understand that Taylor was to some to some extent discredited. Right, his research was found to be inaccurate. Um, in some instances, actually fraudulent with falsified data. But the efficiency practices that he advocated and, and, as you say, quote-unquote, perfected, these still proliferated into the 20th century. Why was that? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right with that. His methods and his approach were, were discredited. Um, he was actually, he was called before the House of Representatives and there was actually a, a Senate inquiry into his methods because workers had recognised that despite saying that he was recording the results of the, the time mm. that they were working to, results weren't being recorded or um, if they were, there were these sorts of ballpark estimates about work-to-rest ratios and things like that. And increasingly workers were becoming alienated from their work. They were becoming absolutely exhausted from these just unsustainable uh, tasks that they were being made to do. So, um, yes, so Taylor's methods and his approach to factory work in particular were uh, discredited over time. There are kind of a number of reasons that his ideas have remained in vogue, uh, even up until today in a sort of slightly transformed way. I think there's probably a a number of reasons uh, for this. I think the first and foremost would be that Taylor was never working in a vacuum. Uh, His ideas, in fact, actually aren't really that original. Um, In fact, a lot of what Taylor did was really just sort of systematise and condense and collate a bunch of ideas that were already uh, being discussed in management circles. Um, But he was one of the first people to really sort of give a, a, a scientific management a coherent shape and a coherent form and to really spruik scientific management as a sort of like a, an approach to efficiency. Um, so there were any number of other theorists that were working uh, at the same time as him. It just happened that Taylor became um, quite well known because he was, you know, so very outspoken on the topic. And it was also sort of during this period, the period that Taylor was working, that we actually see scientific management uh, spread as a kind of a, a working phenomenon across the planet. It's not just located in Philadelphia, America, but we also sort of see discussion um, of, of scientific management in, you know, the, in, in, in Britain, in even Soviet Russia. Like Lenin actually urged the study of, of Taylor's scientific management. <laughs> um, you know, even in Australia, you could think of someone like, you know, the organisation theorist Elton Mayo, who um, I believe he's referred to as the, the father of uh, human research resources. So there's all this this number of reasons that Taylorism has sort of, or the legacy of Taylor has sort of persisted. Not least as well, you know, despite my misgivings of this sort of scientific management process, I think that it's important to clarify that there was this real genuine optimism that underpinned a lot of these practices. So uh, the Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis, you know, he he was renowned for sort of saying, well, efficiency is the hope for American democracy. Um, And he was good friends with Taylor as well. And he really believed that if we could just be more efficient, then people would actually have a happier, more fulfilling life. You know, products would be cheaper. There would be a stockpile of them that people could just, you know, access. And I think that the final point that I'd raise is that also Taylor's practices, they weren't just restricted to like the factory floor. 
Um, and they actually came to sort of infiltrate almost every industry of work. So you see efficiency practices popping up in like offices and even in like office furniture, like, like people were selling things called like efficiency desks. Um, and even in like household management guides sort of around this time, it really entered into the home as well, where wives were sort of, you know, urged to, you know, create to-do lists to better manage their, their households. This is where things take an interesting turn because as the 20th century rolls on, we see efficiency becoming personalised with the rise of the self-help industry. Tell me about that and in what ways can we see self-enhancement as a a continuation of the kind of thing that, that Taylor was advocating with his scientific management? It, it is a really interesting thing because I think that really there couldn't be this sort of idea of um, a self-help industry or this sort of um, personal efficiency without it sort of already being a cultural obsession in the ways that we sort of work, whether that be, you know, in the office, in the factory at home. And so I think I really think it's not surprising that you actually see things like productivity literature really boom in the 1970s and the 1980s among white collar readers in particular because there's this sort of a certain neoliberal entrepreneurial sensibility that's sort of booming at the same time. And this is something that a lot of at least early sort of self-help productivity literature valorises in this celebration of the individual, the personal drive, the competitive individual. And the point that I'd sort of raise here in this sort of interesting sort of period post-Taylor, post-Taylorism, is that self-help and even maybe sort of leaning into today where we have things like productivity apps, um, wearable technologies that sort of tell us, you know, uh, how well we've meditated or whatnot. I think that a lot of this sort of stuff is really, it's, it's not just a continuation of a certain 20th century Taylorism that monitored workers on the factory floor, but we're actually seeing this, this transformation, this turning inwards of Taylorism, where we are sort of tacitly urged to kind of focus on ourselves, maybe rather rather more than the world out there. Uh, because, you know, at least we can change ourselves, we can better ourselves, we can optimise ourselves. But the world out there, this world that is sort of out of our control, we can't change that. So at least we can sort of, you know, work on being fitter, better, happier, even if we can't change things via politics even anymore. Right. So then the question of what's wrong with it all, you know, why, why shouldn't we work to become our best selves and enhance ourselves? You're saying it's a, it's a retreat from politics essentially and a, a sort of a, the metaphor of the market starts to embrace everything right down to the, the, the most sort of intimate personal level. Yeah. I mean, the, the question of, of what's wrong with this is a curious one because it's great for people to have things like goals, uh, to have things that they want to work towards. I mean, obviously, my goodness, we're living at a time where some incredibly important work is being done to you know, get vaccines out, for instance. But there are two major problems that I've sort of in- increasingly identified around uh, the sort of valorization of efficiency. And the first is that there seems to be this, this unquestioning agreement that we should all be more efficient And unfortunately, I feel that this unspoken or unquestioning agreement around efficiency seems to leave out the what for question. So why, for whom and for what is all of this efficiency important? You know, does it it actually make our lives better? Um, Is it in service for something else? You know, I think back to Taylor's workers, you know, this efficiency was clearly not for them. It was to get more out of them. And so, in effect, are we all, you know, maybe working even more now, even in our free time, in between work, uh, even through our hobbies? And 
With that in mind, the second point that I'd always um, keep in mind is that I would want to point out a kind of caution that we need to recognise when calls for efficiency actually hide an underlying austerity. And Melissa Gregg, um, uh, she, she actually makes a great point about this in her book, Counterproductive, that efficiency and productivity pressures, um, they often rise in tandem with things like economic downturns and with crises. And I'd say that, you know, we're currently facing a hospital crisis in Australia during the pandemic. Like in public hospitals, for example, efficiency has meant cutting all the slack in the system, you know, running hospitals constantly at a kind of, you know, at full capacity. And this means that when the pandemic began, our hospitals were already working overtime. I know even, um, you know, even in Queensland, for instance, I think it was in 2020 that there was a, what was it? It was about like a $1 billion cut um, of, of funding for hospitals under the guise of a kind of efficiency dividend. So this use of the term efficiency and this appeal to always be more efficient, I think we need to be a little bit considerate of what it means. Does it point to a kind of increasing austerity? Does it point to uh, the dissolution of our freedoms and uh, to the dissolution as well of even like our personal free time and things like that? You're in the Philosopher's Zone. I'm David Rutledge, and I'm here this week with Eva Buyalka from Curtin University in Perth, WA. We're talking about the world of work, which is in some ways a very odd world. It's full of tacit assumptions about the naturalness of the economic order and our role within it. This week, we're questioning some of those assumptions with some help from one of the more fascinating figures in 20th century philosophy. Well, let's turn to the question of how we can maybe begin to rethink all of this. You're interested in the work of Georges Bataille, the early 20th century French philosopher who was deeply preoccupied with work and with the question of how we spend our time. And he's an interesting figure to bring to this discussion because in many ways he's the polar opposite of Frederick W. Taylor. So let's get into this by talking about Bataille's conception of the economy. What does that look like? Bataille was really concerned with, um, I guess, what he saw as a kind of an insufficiency in the economy as this kind of freestanding, autonomous entity. And I suppose in his work, he does try to take up this sort of critical quasi-Marxist position to challenge the belief in the primacy of the economic, where the economic is a sort of a, a, a sphere of production. I think we see this even persisting today. So, for instance, you know, one of the sort of uh, responses that we've seen in Australia to something like the pandemic is like, oh, yes, the pandemic is bad. People do get sick and that's really bad. But, oh, the economy. Oh, we need to get back to work to keep the economy running. Uh, as though it was this separate entity, this other thing that sort of uh, lives out there that, that it has, has a life force that needs to be fed. And so I think that Bataille was very concerned with this idea of the economy as this entity out there that persists separately from, from, from us, as this kind of autonomous creature. Um, and he actually argues that this is, in fact, a very Western notion um, of economy and that in sort of historical societies, in maybe even like sacrificial societies, um, there's no sense of this kind of productive economy. 
Um, and he believes that it's, I guess, sort of through like a Western imperialism, through a kind of Western uh, hegemony, that other societies are brought into the influence of this, this way of understanding. And so I think he is reminiscent of and kind of echoes someone like Max Weber, you know, who believes that this economy out there, this, this capitalist system out there, has really removed all of the vestiges of um, of a community, a sense of community that we once had, a sort of unifying belief in our world um, that has come to be replaced by a kind of presumed unquestionable good around accumulation, profit and, and production. And so Bataille is interested in trying to get behind this. He kind of wants to take a step back and he wants to try to reconsider and reread this obsession, this fetishization with accumulation and profit. And by trying to do this, he, he asks us to try to query, well, maybe we shouldn't so much think of it in terms of, um, you know, uh, this, this economic system is something that creates profit, but instead, you know, we, we need to ask ourselves, well, what is this excess that is being produced? So what you're describing here is what Bataille refers to as a restricted or limited economy. And it's that familiar understanding of the economy predicated on the notion that there's there's not enough to go around, right? We, we need to produce and gather up and hoard our wealth and all our things in order to stave off the scarcity that's always lurking in the wings. And Over against this, Bataille posits a theory of what he calls general economy, which is about the expenditure of wealth, the release of excess resources rather than their accumulation. How does he plot that out? Bataille's writing on the general economy is interesting. One of of the questions that Bataille asks in sort of trying to conceptualise the general economy is what would a non-economic exchange look like? What would it an exchange that has no kind of productive quality, no kind of accumulative property, no kind of sense of a return look like? It isn't conceived through the lens of scarcity, but instead through a lens of abundance. And again, this might sound incredibly counterintuitive to your listeners. Uh, I fully, fully sympathise with that. It's a provocative proposal. And it's not one that is meant to be totalising in the sense of like, well, you know, we'll just, you know, mine the earth for all its possible resources and be done with it. But I think it does try to genuinely question the scarcity versus abundant sort of divide. So Bataille actually, he provides a number number of ways of thinking about this sort of economy of abundance, uh, this this contrasting point to uh, this this restricted idea of of scarcity. And so he he uses the example, um, and look, this is going to be at a kind of a cosmic level, but he gives the example of the sun. So he talks about the sun is this sort of super abundant solar force. It just gives out so much radiation and energy. Uh, my goodness, we live in Australia. You know, I don't imagine that anyone who has just been through the second heat wave that we've had in Western Australia this summer would be able to deny that the sun has the capacity to just give and give and give in excess uh, without seeming to ask for anything in return. And as a result of sort of all of this giving, all of this plenitude, um, this sort of circumstance where uh, I think to, to quote Bataille, he says, everything is rich. You know, Bataille believes that we actually face quite a different kind of problem in our world, um, in a world that's sort of framed around abundance. Whereas in a model of scarcity, we would face the, the problem of, you know, do I have enough to survive? Instead, through this sort of this frame of, of abundance, the problem that we face is excess. 
So rather than a, a drive to sort of produce and accumulate, um, the question is how can we actually expend all of this sort of this stuff that we have, all of this excess that we have? And what's at stake there? Why is it necessary for Bataille for excess energy to be squandered rather than saved? There's a couple of reasons in Bataille's thinking for this. Now, I mean, obviously the current received wisdom that we would have is we live in a world where, you know, productive forces grow more and more and more, where we meet more and more of our material needs. Um, even, you know, we meet our material needs even outside of our need for them. So, you know, we can stockpile things in warehouses. We can just have all this excess just hanging around all the time. And this is the industrial capitalist enterprise, you know, the mass production of things like consumer goods. And for Bataille, I guess this degree of industrial production gestures to a kind of a horrifying subordination uh, where we become uh, subordinated to a world of things. Um, and so Bataille says, you know, we, we need to sort of shake off the shackles of this kind of subordination. And in fact, even within the sort of framework of, of uh, the general economy, this is in fact very, very necessary, Bataille would argue. So for Bataille, I suppose overproduction and hoarding makes very little sense within a framework of general economy. You know, I mean, if anything, there's, I hate to use the term, but there's a slightly pragmatic reason to squander and to expend excess in a kind of a, a glorious, non-productive fashion. You know, if everything is rich, why would I want to accumulate and hoard and save? You know, why, why overproduce? You know, what, what is the purpose of this excess? And then, of course, I mean, there's the additional point for Bataille that excess cannot be completely reabsorbed into a system of growth and production. Uh, and look, I mean, this is sort of a kind of a crude metaphor, but it's one that he sort of uses nonetheless, you know, regarding the sun, you know, think of a very, very hot day after the sun has sort of shone on like a patch of grass as much as it can over like a 40 degree heat wave day, the grass doesn't grow, you know, shoulder height. Uh, it doesn't just keep growing after it's sort of reached its maximum growth. Um, it absorbs as much light and, you know, photosynthesizes as much as it can perhaps, but it doesn't keep growing and growing. Instead, it actually begins to burn and to dry. And so the metaphor here or the sort of comparison that Bataille would see is that there is this, in the sun at least, there is this sense of unlimited energy being sort of given to us. Um, but what we have is limited growth. So I think there's sort of like a, a, a comparative metaphor here with, with something like, you know, overproduction. There is this unlimited stuff just being produced and stockpiled, but there's only a limited number of ways that we can actually use all of this stuff. And so Bataille believed that excess, it must be spent, you know, willingly or not, either kind of gloriously or else risk rupturing catastrophically. And so Bataille believed that in sort of like a capitalist mode of production in the current world that we live in, uh, given our rate of development, part of the problem is that over overproduction and over accumulation, he argued, actually in part led to the First and the Second World Wars. Um, you know, he refers to these wars as sort of based on this kind of industrial plethora of, of things. Um, you know, both wars exuded this sort of um, capacity for, for mechanised killing. Um, you know, now we have all these new and inventive ways to, to kill ourselves and kill each other. Bataille's sort of concern here is, well, 
rather than going to war, perhaps what we can do is actually try to use up this excess in a kind of a glorious way. You know, perhaps in the past it might have been through a festival. Um, maybe today we could think of it being used up in these other luxuriating ways, you know, by way of sex or art or uh, drunkenness or something like that. Um, I mean, and to tie this back, actually, sorry, to, to the concern that I mentioned earlier about efforts to continue to try to optimise our free time, you know, turning every aspect of our downtime into something resembling work, I think that there is sort of a continuity here, you know, you know, outside of work, I'm going to hustle my side business all the time, uh, you know, when I finish work, I'm going to go jogging. There's nothing wrong with these in principle, but the problem that I think Bataille would sort of see is that doing all of this, this, this consistent compulsion to work and to turn any downtime into a productive measure sort of forecloses our way of thinking outside of a work ethic. It's it's great the way, I mean, I, I love how in relation to this, you've written about Homer Simpson and um, the dude in, in The Big Lebowski, you know, both of whom are, are sort of Bataillean figures in, in this sense. And it's sort of interesting to think about how how deeply this goes against all of our productive instincts. Because if we look at the dude, I mean, he's he's an unrepentant slob. He's, he's just hanging out, drinking and getting stoned. And everyone, you know, everyone loves that movie. Everyone loves the dude. But in real life, I think the dude where he exists is, is actually a deeply despised figure, especially in Australia. You know, the doll bludger, the, the work shy millennial these people are endlessly demonised in the media in a way that makes you wonder about our, our cultural self-image as a nation of laid-back anti-authoritarians. Do you have any thoughts on that, particularly as, as somebody working in the academy where, you know, we, we see what's happening in, with, with the humanities and the idea of universities being supposed to turn out job-ready graduates? What are, you, what are your thoughts on all of that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think you've pointed out a really, really curious contradiction um, in the sort of the um, the Australian psyche, where you know, on the one hand, there's this this national identity of the the anti-authoritarian, you know, larrikin, but on the other hand, this disdain for, um, yeah, again, you know, in scare quotes, the the, the doll bludger. I mean, I know someone like uh, Josh Cohen, for instance. He wrote this fantastic book called Not Working, where he um, He's fascinated by this image of like the slob or the um, the burnout or these sort of people who sort of um, demonstrate for us, you know, a sort of like a, a despondency with work and who on the one hand we might sort of feel an affinity for, oh, if only I could be, you know, as free as the dude Lebowski and just wear my nightgown all day. Um, but on the other hand, this sort of this um, rabid disgust for them where it's like... Um, Oh, you know, I couldn't possibly do that. You're wasting time. Um, you're 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 sapping all of our resources. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, and I think especially, you know, that there is a way to sort of address this kind of contradiction uh, through our current work and and you know educational context, and especially as you say through this current current state of humanities. And really under the, the Morrison government's fixation on, on universities as kind of as being this place that should be churning out job-ready graduates. And I think as well there's even a way to tie the tie back in into all of this, but I'll, I'll see how I go. <laughs> um, I, I do work in um, the university sector and I work within the humanities. So that's something that I'm sort of immediately concerned with. And I guess regarding the humanities, what I'd always like to see is a bit of a reconsideration of what we seem to think the humanities are there for, because 
you know, the, the current impetus seems to be that we need to instrumentalise the humanities in some way. But I think that there's something kind of absurd about framing a creative writing or a poetry class or a cultural studies unit through a list of, like, job-ready skills that it will provide graduates with. And to be honest, I would never tell students who, you know, are doing creative writing in my class that this is a reliable path to fiscal security. Now, the question, of course, is, you know, does this mean then that the arts and the humanities shouldn't be taught at universities at all, that we shouldn't pursue it as, as, you know, for any reason? Well, no, I mean, I think absolutely the arts and the humanities should be taught at universities, and I think that we should genuinely pursue them. But there is something sort of problematic here. And, I mean, look, I'll I'll give you an example from my own sort of um, experience, because at an institution that I've worked at in the past, it was always around open day um, where, you know, students, prospective students and their parents would come onto campus and try to talk with us about the courses that they were thinking uh, of studying. And we were told to try to sell humanities courses uh, like this. So if parents asked, you know, what kind of job could my child get from studying creative writing, cultural studies, philosophy, we were supposed to try to always refer to the job statistics and the number of career avenues that this would sort of open up to people. Um, You know, we'd always, you know, be urged to talk about the fact that they're learning transferable skills that are applicable in almost any industry. But I think the problem here is that I'm not sure who's buying this. Um, I don't disagree that this is possibly the case that they are learning transferable skills that can be again like you know applicable in almost any industry but I'm not sure if this is really the purpose of the humanities. I think the question that we sort of need to ask ourselves today is is the role of the university to be a jobs factory and if we sort of accept that it is then I think we also by that measure need to accept that a certain level of well, to a certain degree, there's there's going to be a denigration of the, the purpose of the university, which is human education. And moreover, there's going to be a denigration of the purpose of the arts and the humanities. Um, so I think that that's really something that we need to be sort of considerate of. If we always try to justify the humanities in a sort of an instrumental fashion, we lose sight of the purpose of the humanities. Really, I mean, my argument has always been that the humanities are there to make sense of a culture that we're born into, uh, the sort of the, the ideas and the meanings that we inherit. I, I think as well the, the purpose of the humanities is there to help us face the real existential challenges that we can't just sort of simply overcome with, you know, mindfulness or positive thinking or some other kind of instrumentally productive model. This would be the sort of reason that I think we need to sort of try to think outside of this kind of job readiness framework and try to sort of reappreciate the humanities as something that perhaps uh, troubles a kind of closed off narrative um, of the productive or the instrumental purpose of, of, of studying. And I mean, look, to, to return to Bataille, um, I think that there is sort of something important um, that we can actually draw from like Bataille here with regards to something like the humanities, because For Bataille, and I mean, he talks a bit about um, literature in this kind of regard, where he suggests that there is an important, a really essential unproductiveness that is bound up with the creation of art, um, in particular with, with like writing literature. So he's got this book, Literature and Evil, and he argues right from his preface that 
I can't remember the exact quote, but it's something to the effect of literature has to plead guilty. It's an expression of a kind of sovereign value. It is this glorious expenditure that stands outside of work and productivity, and yet it builds an intense form of communication with the reader. And so I suppose sort of broadly speaking, what I think is really curious is that in our modern circumstance, it seems really difficult to think of life outside of a kind of a productive value. Um, It's difficult to think of life and even of arts as a kind of inaction or a kind of um, unproductive expenditure. Um, But I think what's so interesting about and so important about Bataille is that he actually um, tries to sort of pose other ways of thinking and and, and troubles the sort of the received wisdom of a kind of instrumentalist approach to, to life and to art. He is a radical, though, isn't he? And it it brings up this question of how practical his ideas are. I don't want to say useful. I mean, that's that's sort of (laughs) precisely the wrong term to bring to this. But, you know, he's an all or nothing kind of guy and, and he doesn't do philosophy for everyday life. And I wonder, I mean, his, his analysis of work and the general economy, this, this suggests nothing short of a complete rejection and a dismantling of industrial capitalism which is fine in one sense. But, you know, if, if I get up in the morning and I say, okay, today I am going to put some of Bataille's ideas into practice, how might I proceed with that? Because if the answer is just, you know, lie on the couch and pull some bongs and enjoy your sovereignty, you know, that doesn't seem to help with the big picture. I wonder if we can formulate some sort of politics perhaps from Bataille's theory here. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that you sort of, you, you sort of queried the word um, practical and, and, and putting it into practice and, and it being productive. And in terms of, you know, Bataille's ideas having an instrumental quality or having like a practical quality, I mean, I think, and perhaps I'm sort of hedging things a little bit here. I think I'd always want to remind us like, you know, it, it's it's a theory. Bataille is developing theory. Um, and I don't think Bataille would necessarily sort of say, you know, go out, be my disciple, do precisely what I do. Because, you know, we, we know from his biography that he uh, was certainly someone who didn't always rock up to work <laughs> uh, and that he, you know, sort of reveled in being like a lazy, well, in being someone uh, for whom there was a kind of lazy vitality, um, you know, who would al- al- always sort of, you know, write about how violently, drunkenly ill he'd been or how excessive his, um, his, his evenings had been. I think that the usefulness of Bataille, oh gosh, yeah, again, it's <laughs> not the right word whatsoever, but the, the usefulness of Bataille, or maybe actually I think a term that Bataille might enjoy is use value. The use value of Bataille is not that it provides any kind of solutionist active, clear-cut politics even as such. Um, I I mean, and this is not to say that it can't be used in in thinking politics, but I don't think it necessarily provides a kind of solutionist politics. His writing is is certainly political, um, without a doubt, but I think that his power as a theorist, his power as a writer, is not that he sort of provides a coherent political avenue, um, you know, forward, you know, do this and be happy, I mean, Bataille works and writes within a kind of an existentialist tradition. So I think in many ways part of the power of his work is that it relates to people, you know, to their their sense of, you know, the injustices of work, to their sense of um, the, the ways that they could possibly spend their time outside of work. And I think that this in part, this sort of this this ability to reach a reader in a kind of personable manner, is its power. It prompts us to rethink. It doesn't sort of, it doesn't tell us you must now go and get drunk, 
but it prompts us to rethink um, a, a kind of a, a schema that we're that we're born into that that suggests that we ought to be you know forever trying to optimize our time, be efficient, be productive. And I think, you know, look, I I think it's probably naive to think that Bataille is going to provide a way to overthrow a system or have a kind of coherent politics in this regard. But I do think, you know, he provides a really meaningful way of rethinking, again, the system that we're born into. And in fact, you know, there are a number of um, writers who have actually sort of taken up Bataille's thought in an attempt to try to think through our current sort of, you know, political position, as it were, so, for instance, there's the, the sociologist Lindsay McGowie. Um, she's written quite compellingly about the Thai and general economy. And she's actually suggested that rejuvenating the study of something like economic abundance will actually, you know, help us to better theorise the limits of very mainstream economic thought and the political structures it supports. And so we're seeing, like, increased scholarship, be it by McGowie or, I mean, there's some other theorists. There's a guy called Andrew Abbott. There's um, Katya Mandoki that really tries to sort of interrogate by way of, you know, among other theorists, especially Bataille's theories of excess and abundance and the ways that his ideas might be taken up in forming a critique of our current sort of received wisdom around economy and also in trying to think through a way that we to this end, might be able to sort of, you know, critique the sort of political structures that this supports. And so I suppose we're sort of, we're seeing more research directed towards an effort to query what it means on the one hand to sort of have a legitimate concern with, you know, things like the depletion, lack of resources, overproduction and mining, but also concomitantly the hoarding of wealth by a very few billionaires who, you know, as we know, over the course of the pandemic, have, I can't remember the exact numbers that the, that Oxfam report um, gestured to, but, you know, they've, they've doubled or tripled their wealth, even as the most vulnerable members of society have lost their jobs or have been required to work under you know, increasingly dangerous conditions. And so in contrast, you know, to the talking point that billionaires love to throw around, which is like, you know, um, there's overpopulation and we live in a world with scarce resources, well, instead, there's growing effort among researchers to think with Bataille about what it would mean to rethink an economy in terms of abundance. You know, where instead of you know billionaires celebrating their philanthropy um, or being able to you know make tax-deductible charity donations, how instead the ultra-rich could instead give back their wealth as a kind of a gift without expecting a return. And so I think this is sort of like a number of ways that I've tried to sort of think about, again, in scare quotes, the sort of like the use or the practical sort of quality of Bataille, be it in forming a way forward of thinking about a kind of a, a, a transformation in politics or even a way of sort of, you know, thinking about what it means to be a member of a, a class of workers, a class of casual sessional workers uh, who's, who's trying to imagine what it would mean to sort of exist outside of a schema of production and optimization. Yeah, and I, I think you've articulated something really nicely there about how Bataille understood himself, which was not as some sort of practical ethicist, but he very much saw himself, didn't he, as a, a provocateur, as a sort of a catalyst, as, as he wanted his work to occasion an experience in the reader. And I think that's the kind of thing you're talking about, isn't it? If, if, we, if we want to talk about the usefulness of, of Bataille's work, a lot of it comes down to where it's pointing and the, the kind of balls that it, it gets rolling. Absolutely. Yes, 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 yes. I think I think you're so right to sort of say, yeah, his, his work does have this very provocative quality to it. 
Um, and I think it, it, it doesn't, it's not simply um, writing for shock value, um, but actually, yeah, an effort to really try to uh, interrogate what would it mean to think otherwise. Yeah. Well, this has been a huge freewheeling conversation, as conversations about Bataille always seem to be. But I, I love the way you've brought it into land really nicely. So I think we'll stop there and I'll just say, um, Eva Buyaka, it's been great to have you on the program. Thanks so much for your time. Oh, look, thank you so much for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. And Eva Buyalka is an academic working at Curtin University in Perth, where she also teaches at the School of Critical Arts. And it's worth mentioning that Eva is also a musician, and in the spirit of uh, glorious non-accumulative energy expenditure, I'm going to put a link to her Bandcamp site on the Philosopher's Zone website. And that's it from me this week. I'm David Rutledge, and I hope you can join me next time. Bye for now. Bye for now.